Hello, and welcome to Bridgeford Trust Company's Delivering Direction and Control podcast series. Our podcast series is designed to educate, challenge, and inspire listeners while keeping you updated on developments regarding modern trust law and powerful planning opportunities available, all in an effort to deliver direction and control to clients and their advisors. In this episode, we sit down with guest Gideon Rothschild, partner and co-chair of Moses and Singer's Trusts and Estates and Asset Protection Practices for an intriguing discussion on asset protection, including the debate among practitioners, domestic versus offshore asset protection, as well as the factors, issues, and planning strategies available to international families in the United States. Well, I am very happy to uh, be with Gideon Rothschild today in yet another installment of uh, Bridgeford's podcast series. Um, we are actually thrilled to have Gideon be part of our podcast series uh, as we have been um, developing and having great conversations with some of the leading minds in the country around asset protection issues, uh, tax planning issues, and really all things involving trusts. And, and Gideon is, in many respects, somebody who needs no introduction, um, but I'm going to give a brief one anyway, if Gideon doesn't mind. I could actually take our whole time together, 30 minutes, and, and still not finish uh, your bio, Gideon. I have to say you are one of the most uh, impressive speakers I've ever seen, and you've spe- you seem to have spoken all over the world. I don't know, uh, I don't know how, you, how do you find the time to practice law in all of the speaking, but uh, it's quite impressive. Um, but a couple of things that's very noteworthy to me, and I think our listeners for sure, is you know, for two years in a row, Gideon has been selected uh, New York City's Lawyer of the Year. Um, he is a prolific writer. I've read a lot of his articles, a lot of your articles, Gideon. I've followed you for years, and uh, I've always enjoyed your take, particularly on asset protection, which is going to be a big topic for today. Um, and, um, of course, Gideon is a partner at Moses and Singer in, in New York City, uh, works extensively with high net worth individuals uh, between $5 million and exceeding $1 billion families. Uh, and really has his, his finger sort of on the pulse of, of what we're excited about at Bridgeford Trust Company, which is really modern trust law. Um, you know, South Dakota, of course, is where we're chartered, but we're it's one of three or four or five jurisdictions in the United States that have kind of ascended to be the selection or the jurisdictions of choice, particularly for asset protection, privacy, not only for domestic families, um, but international families. And one of the things that has most impressed me about uh, Gideon as I've gotten to know him and, and of course, listen to him speak is how you know, he was doing international work and working with international families long before uh, it was trendy to be working with international families. Uh, so he's able to comment on a, um, in, a, in a kind of a different perspective. Uh, and I'm excited to have him talk about asset protection in the context of domestic and offshore comparisons and where he sees is the, uh, is the best way to do it. But Gideon, I'd like to lead into your really impressive leadership with STEP. Um, and if you could describe what STEP is, I, I'm interested to, to know how you got involved in it. Describe it for our listeners because it's a tremendous organization, but but uh, I'm cu- curiously not as well known as I thought it would be. I, I learned about it when I was in London years ago. I actually met a couple of the founders and, and it was just started to develop in New York City specifically. This is probably eight or nine years ago. And, um, and even still, I'm surprised again at how many people don't know about it or understand it. So please, Gideon, of all the accomplishments you've had over the years. To me, this is uh, one of the most impressive in terms of your leadership there. So please, could you talk about that? So so we'll do a, a brief uh, a brief overview of STEP. You're right. A lot of people don't know uh, about STEP here in the United States. If, if you go overseas, 
uh, in the UK or any of the UK Commonwealth countries in, in the Caribbean or you go to Canada, uh, you will not find a trust in states practitioner, whether it be a lawyer or accountant, uh, that is not familiar with STEP. It is uh, almost uh, expected that one would be a STEP member if they have the necessary credentials. It's not just an organization like the ABA where you just write out a check. You actually have to be accepted into the organization by being nominated by two people, having 10 years of experience uh, in, the, in the field of trust and states. In, in the UK and Canada, you actually have to take an exam on trust law. Uh, we haven't yet gotten to that point yet here in the U.S., but we have uh, uh, over 1,200 members, I believe, now in the U.S., uh, about 20, 000, over 20,000 worldwide. Uh, and in fact, uh, STEP members uh, have the designation TEP, Trust and States Practitioner, which is a designation like CFP is given here by the College of Financial Planning. The TEP designation is given by STEP to those individuals who uh, uh, are members who are able to uh, meet the requirements of membership. Uh, I uh, was the uh, chair of STEP New York uh, about 15 years ago now, probably, uh, when the branch was, was first getting, uh, getting uh, formed here. Uh, and, uh, and now I'm a, a member at large on the board of directors of STEP USA. Uh, there are about uh, 14 or so branches in the United States. And, and the one thing that distinguishes STEP from some of the other teeny organizations is, is the fact that in most of these branches, the emphasis, if not all, the emphasis is really cross-border planning. Uh, so anything having to do with, with uh, multinational client uh, uh, assets or, or families uh, is what we involve ourselves with. And here in New York, especially being a, an international kind of center, uh, our, our monthly meetings and our, we have a, an annual two-day conference uh, in New York in March. Uh, I think it's the second week or so in March on Thursday and Friday of that week. Uh, co-sponsored with the New York State Bar Association, uh, and we typically sell out on that. There's three, over 300 people that attended last year, uh, and it is completely cross-border planning oriented. In fact, I'll, I'll give a presentation uh, next March uh, similar to what I'm doing at Heckerling in January with my partner, Dan Rubin, and uh, another attorney from New Hampshire, Amy Kanyuk. Uh, the three of us will be doing a workshop on uh, around the world in asset protection in 90 minutes. Uh, and so I'm not sure that we have 90 minutes here to talk about around the world in asset protection, but, <laughs> but, but, uh, so that, that's an introduction to step. Uh, and for those who are interested in this area, you can come to the meetings as a guest, you can go on the step.org website and see where branches are located and what meetings are scheduled. Some have monthly meetings like in New York, some have quarterly meetings, and we've got typically great speakers coming here from around the world to talk about uh, their uh, probate process, their estate process, inheritance law, forced heirship laws, uh, trust law, and things of that sort. No, I appreciate you doing uh, talking through that. I, I'm, we're a big fan of STEP. We, we routinely sponsor the New York event and Miami event and, and a couple in California and, and, of course, the Latin America event we just came back from. So we, we are a big believer in it because of our its education quality for sure and also the networking and the ability to kind of stay fresh and, and, and know what's happening in the international world because I don't need to tell you, Gideon, but it's, it seems to me that every week we seem to discover another nuance in dealing with the international community. So it's, it's a great organization. So for those of you who don't know, about it, look, look into it. 
Gideon, again, we really appreciate you being here. And, you know, what I have followed you, as I've followed your writing and, and have watched you speak, I've, I've always been sort of, um, I guess, impressed with just your command of asset protection generally. And, you know, and, and asset protection is defined differently by different people and has sort of been bantered about uh, years ago. I remember when Delaware first established its asset protection statute. Uh, and I, I think that you know, in some cases, in some in some instances, I'm not sure that everybody defines it the, the same. Could you define asset protection in the context of your practice? Why don't we start there, and then we can get into some other issues. So, so, so let me first say, asset protection is not a means of hiding money or engaging in fraudulent transfers. And I must say that probably half the calls I get are, are from people who have uh, that objective in mind. Maybe not the hiding money so much, but but the fraudulent transfers certainly, you know, got a call yesterday. Guy's in the midst of a divorce. He, he lives in Brazil. He wants to know how he can uh, transfer his money so his wife can't get it. I said, I'm sorry, too late. Uh, and uh, and I, this happens every single day. I, I, I people find me on the internet. They read the articles, and and there's probably some folks out there that'll take on a case like that. But uh, uh, it's it's a risky proposition. You could get disbarred if you're a lawyer. There are a lot of promoters out there on the internet, and I, I don't know that they're all uh, ethical and 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 follow the rules. Uh, they should, if they're attorneys, certainly. Uh, and there are some major risks for. Engage, assisting someone in engaging in asset protection. So in the first instance, I think you need to know who your client is and, and do the proper due diligence. And assuming the clients are coming to you uh, before any clouds appear on the horizon, uh, there are many ways of protecting assets. And although, <coughs> sorry, uh, although, um, you know, a lot of the promoters in this area, you know, one size fits all. Come to my office. We'll set up a foreign trust for you. Uh, underneath it, we'll put a limited partnership. You can still control it. Uh, I don't buy into that concept. Um, you shouldn't be controlling it. Uh, you shouldn't have the assets here if you're going to do a foreign trust. Uh, and it isn't a one size fits all solution. Uh, for example, if it's a married couple, uh, you have a lot of other options these days from SLATs, Spousal Lifetime Access Trust, uh, to, you know, transferring assets to a spouse, to, you know, uh, before you even get into the self-settled spouse arena, uh, self-settled trust arena, uh, whether it be offshore or domestic, uh, there are these other options that one should explore that are much less uh, subject to uh, question if you're not living in one of these states. Now, for those folks who live in South Dakota, the 20 of you there, uh, along with the mooses, <laughs> moose, or whatever it is in plural, <laughs> uh, the, the uh, you know, those people, I think, uh, and, and, you know, we have 19 states now that have enacted this legislation since Alaska and Delaware, the first two to, to move in this direction back in, in the mid-90s. Uh, now you've got 19, the latest to Connecticut and Indiana. So when you look at this, uh, you see that uh, of the top 10 states with millionaires in the country, seven now have asset protection trust legislation. So if your millionaire client lives in one of these 19 states, there's no reason to go offshore, quite frankly. And, you know, 20 years ago, 25 years ago, when I was doing a lot of this work, uh, when I first started, the only place to go was, was offshore. So we right. went to the Bahamas and Cook Islands and Cayman and Nevis mm -hmm. and what have you. And, and I did maybe, you know, 25, 30 foreign trusts a year. Uh, mm -hmm. And now if I do two or three a year, it's a lot. 
quite frankly, right. because we have all of these opportunities of staying onshore for clients, particularly those living in one of these 19 states. Now, unfortunately, New York is not one of those 19, and, and neither is Florida, and neither is California, where we have a large contingent of clients. Uh, right. And and so the question is, what what is the... Uh, effectiveness of these structures. If I set up a Delaware trust and designate Bridgeford Trust as my trustee, uh, is is that going to be respected uh, by well, a court and I in love, New and York? I love the po- yeah, and if I could jump in right, that that's exactly I think to me the the million dollar question because you know that debate has been fascinating to me. I mean, I, as, as a lawyer by training, I especially at Hackerley a couple of years ago, I found myself in a pretty hot debate with some very bright people over dinner about whether or not it even works. And you know, the the argument was, you know, there's only the only real way to get asset protection is to go to those offshore jurisdictions that you mentioned, and and then of course the proliferation of domestic asset protection, and and there are some that say that it just doesn't work, and and I I struggle with that blank conclusion because I'm not sure there's any evidence of that yet but could you comment on that so so clearly if a person has cash they want to protect you know if they ask me well what's the what's the most protective the offshore is going to create I mean let's back up for a second and what is asset protection it's really uh, trying to get as much leverage to negotiate a settlement as you can and and the the greater the hurdles that you put before a creditor uh, the the more likely you'll be able to settle for something cents on you know ten twenty thirty cents on a dollar, and that's the objective. The objective shouldn't be ever, even if you go offshore, it shouldn't be to put you in a position to file bankruptcy and snub your nose at the creditor completely, because if that's the objective here, a bankruptcy trustee is not going to uh, be happy, and a bankruptcy court, which is typically pro creditor is likely to view this uh, in a different manner, in different light, and uh, and not give you a discharge in bankruptcy and you don't accomplish anything except have a, a very uh, difficult litigation ahead of you. So it, the objective should be to settle the litigation. And if you're offshore and you have cash and it's sitting offshore and you really have no control and you set it up in a, in a proper manner, meaning timing-wise, et cetera, uh, that might give you the best protection. If you don't have cash, what I've seen, unfortunately, with many promoters here is is they recommend a whether it be Delaware Trust or South Dakota Trust or whatever, and and you know put your real estate investments or your equity investments. You don't want to move them offshore. Uh, put them into uh, one of these trusts and continue to control them. And uh, obviously, the, the 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 key here is amount of control. The less control you have the more connections, more contacts with the state in which you want to settle this trust, South Dakota, let's say, uh, if the South Dakota trustee has a South Dakota LLC and the assets are physically in South Dakota, I think you have a much better shot uh, at at getting the leverage you need to, to negotiate. Uh, we saw recently the Cleopatra case, uh, right. which was not a self-settled trust, but where the South Dakota court actually came up with a favorable decision for the for the debtor spouse here who was ordered by a California judge to Uh, that the trust had to pay child support. uh, uh, Actually, it wasn't child support. It was, was, I think, alimony, if I'm not mistaken. Yeah, Uh, I think it was alimony. Yeah, it was alimony that that had to be paid pursuant to a California court order uh, against the trust. And the trustee moved the trust then to South Dakota. uh, And uh, and the Supreme Court of South Dakota uh, held that they weren't 
uh, obligated to give full faith and credit to that California court judgment that it would offend South Dakota law to allow a creditor to reach a spendthrift trust. Um, and, and this was a third party trust, you know, created by the, the debtor spouse uh, parents. Uh, and so although it wasn't a self-settled trust, it gives you some ideas to how the how the South Dakota court is going to view uh, a creditor situation uh, attempt to go after a trust with an out-of-state judgment, uh, which is good news for South Dakota trusts. Uh, we haven't, as you said, the million-dollar question, we haven't had the, the, the case come down yet with good facts on a self-settled trust situation. But again, if it gives the creditor some pause to proceed with expensive litigation and and it all depends who the creditor is as well if it's a plaintiff's attorney on a contingency fee you're more likely to settle a case than if it's the federal government uh with unlimited resources uh uh and desire to to seek uh, a just resolution for the government so uh you know that also comes into play uh but but I think that there's a lot to be said. There's a, the train is moving. We have 19 states now. That's you know, 40, almost 40 percent of the United States uh, recognize self-settled trusts. Uh, so it's hard to say that it should be against public policy, even though a lot of courts have used that as a as a basis for non-recognition. Uh, but I think that as time goes by, and, and again, the longer the period between the settlement of this trust and the time that it gets challenged, uh, we have a 10-year bankruptcy statute of limitations. Obviously, the sooner you set one of these up, and I've got trusts that have been set up 20, 25 years ago. There's never been a, a claim brought against them, but the clients can sleep at night knowing that they've got a nest egg of assets that are protected. And at this point, if someone has had these trusts settled for 10, 15, 20 years, uh, I, I find it hard to believe that a that a bankruptcy court is going to disregard uh, state law. But, you know, and, and there's a lot of ways to argue this. There's the Hanson v. Deckler case uh, to give support mm -hmm. to that proposition. Uh, and uh, we just need to find uh, a couple of good fact cases down the road that that uh, we can hang our hats on. But again, if it, it, you don't have to go to the self-settled trust situation. You can go, for example, uh, some of the other ways I do this. I'll set up a South Dakota trust for a client, the benefit of his spouse, let's say. And then the client says, well, what if my spouse dies before me? What if, what if we get divorced? Well, if someone has the power to add the grantor is a beneficiary and it's a South Dakota trust. Well, if he gets sued with uh, before he's added as a beneficiary, it's protected. And if he's added as a beneficiary because he's now either widowed or divorced, uh, it, it's only at that point in time that this is viewed as a self-settled trust. And maybe by then, mm -hmm. 10 years have gone by from the date the trust was originally funded. Uh, and so, you know, again, there, you've got different options. It doesn't have to be self-settled trust from day one. Uh, and that would be, you know, my first step. Now, if somebody's not married, uh, perhaps uh, setting a trust up for children, if they have children, and giving someone the power to add the grantor as a beneficiary at some later date, uh, should his net worth, uh, uh, decline below a certain amount, perhaps you have some standards there uh, that you can put into the trust or just give someone the power to add. Uh, the, these are all ways to uh, avoid the self-settled trust argument if, if one is concerned about that. So a couple of quick tech more technical questions on, on, on the self-settled 
strategy, I suppose. I've heard it argued a couple of different ways, and you know we work with attorneys from all over the country and around the around the world. And, and some attorneys are, are are like like you, in many respects. You know, the, the least amount of control, the better. Uh, don't take any distributions, although you're entitled to them, at least with respect to income. Um, I mean, theoretically, I've, or not theoretically, in reality, uh, the way these things are set up, I understand you can they could have access to all income and they can have discretionary distributions. There's some attorneys we work with who advise absolutely not, don't take anything out of the trust at all, leave it alone, pretend it doesn't exist. Uh, that gives you the optimal protection, and then there are others who say, "Well, no, you know, you do have it's a revocable trust, but it operates like a regular trust, and if you need income, if you need a discretionary distribution, that's fine." I have other attorneys who say, "Well, wait five years or wait three years," and the problem is, I guess there's no specific guidance or case law in this respect. But getting what's your, what, how do you advise clients after these things are set up? Because you know, setting it up is one thing, but the devil's in the details in terms of how it's administered, right? So talk, talk to me about that. Well, well, first of all, you know, the first first decision is whether you want to. Uh, have a completed gift asset protection trust or, yeah. or an incomplete right. gift trust. Obviously, if it's a completed gift, mm -hmm. the settler shouldn't retain any income. Uh, and and these days, uh, a lot of clients with the 11 million now 11 million 580 next year exemption, uh, we have used these trusts uh, more so as completed gift transfers for many clients to be able to use their 11 million 580, the more modestly wealthy. Uh, and, and by the way, I think if you can demonstrate that there are reasons other than creditor avoidance, even if it's future creditors, unknown creditors, uh, if you can demonstrate that the reason we did this was was for uh, estate planning purposes, to take advantage of this large exemption that may is, is may disappear as soon as maybe 2021 if the Democrats get control, uh, I think you have a much better chance of of, uh, of, of a uh, successful defense of a fraudulent transfer claim, you know, because a fraudulent transfer, first of all, the U Uniform Voidable Transaction Act uh, that was passed and that's now been adopted by a couple of dozen states, uh, you know, there's, there's, there's commentary there, in essence, that says that if you're a non-resident of a DAP state and you set up a, a DAP, it's per se a fraudulent transfer, even if you have no creditors. Well, if if I set it up and the purpose is to uh, uh, to utilize the higher state exemption, I think I have a much better chance of avoiding a avoidable transfer argument. Uh, and these days, when we're dealing with clients who have maybe only 30 million, 40 million, and I've had clients with a lot more than that that are reluctant to give away 11, let alone if they're married, 23 million dollars in assets. If you can assure them that they can get it back if their financial circumstances change for the worse, uh, they are beneficiaries of this trust or they can be added as beneficiaries, uh, then, then I think they're more comfortable utilizing that exemption and making this trust a completed gift, which means they can only be a discretionary beneficiary, getting back to your question. If it's an incomplete mm -hmm. gift trust, uh, on the other hand, yes, they can retain the income, but I don't recommend it, I think. And I, and I tell clients, you know, you're, you're much better off if you never request a dime from this trust uh, because a creditor, if you, if you regularly receive distributions, even if it's to reimburse you for income taxes, if you regularly receive distributions, it gives a creditor uh, an argument that you have control over this trust. Every time you made a request, the trustee get, granted the request. Uh, you're, that demonstrates that you have access to these funds and, and you should therefore be compelled to uh, pay this judgment. 
if there are no patterns of distributions, uh, I think not only from a completed gift standpoint, you're much better off. It won't be less, less argument for the IRS to use to include it in your estate uh, when you die, but also you're better off, uh, I think, um, uh, with respect to any credit or issues down the road. Yeah, no, I appreciate that. That's that's good. That's good guidance. You mentioned something <clears throat> as we began about sort of a, a bit of a juxtaposition between um, offshore and domestic asset protection. Give, give us some analysis on that. You know, that's also kind of a debated issue. I know certain states like South Dakota have a what would can be for, referred to as a fleeing provision, which maybe I, you can exp, expand on a little bit as well. But today, as your practice has evolved, I mean, I, you, you mentioned that you, you're not seeing as many offshore. Um, requests. What's the advice, I guess, is really the other question. I mean, how, let's go at it this way. When somebody comes in and they're talking to you and they have these real concerns about, uh, you know, they're in a high-risk high situation but not, not a pending claim and anything having to do with fraudulent transfer, do you, do you suggest the, the international or the offshore option or do you, do you go uh, to, uh, more, well, more quickly? I, to I, I am not biased in, in one direction or another. Some, some lawyers are maybe okay. because they can collect a, a higher fee if they're setting up an offshore structure. <laughs> uh, uh, you know, right. and, and it is. It's about twice as expensive to set up an offshore trust than a domestic trust. Yeah. Uh, the annual mm -hmm. fees are, are not that much different, however, I will say, uh, in terms of trustee fees. Right. Uh, but but there's much more compliance uh, uh, required. And if you trip through that accidentally, uh, you, you could be looking at very significant penalties from the IRS uh, if you file a late 3520. Uh, so, so you've got to have clients who understand the risks and the, uh, and, and the complexity involved. Uh, and, and, you know, unless a client, if a client says, oh, I want to continue to use my Morgan Stanley broker here for my investments, I just want to put them in an offshore trust. I, I, I don't think that that, can, that client's a good candidate for an offshore trust. Frankly, he should have a South Dakota trust in that regard. The assets are here. And, and you know, some lawyers will say, well, but you could liquidate the assets if trouble uh, comes around the horizon and, and move the assets to that point offshore. Well, there are two practical issues with, with that. If you try to move them offshore after you're sued, uh, you might find it difficult to find a trust company that's willing to take it on because they know that there's trouble ahead. They'll do their due diligence. They'll ask for an affidavit of solvency. You're being sued now. No, we don't want you. Mm -hmm. And you may have trouble finding a bank custodian that's going to take the assets at that point also. So unless you've established the account offshore to begin with, uh, that that's a, a an absolute practical hurdle you're going to need to deal with. Uh, and then the other issue is that a court may view your attempts to have this liquidated here and moved offshore at a at a time when you have a litigation brewing, uh, that might put you at the risk of civil contempt. And we know cases where uh, debtors have sat in jail for as long as 16 years for civil contempt uh, for moving assets offshore. Uh, and so uh, that's not something to be taken lightly. Uh, and so if you are uh, interested in asset protection and you want to go offshore, then if you're willing to do it from the get-go, uh, and there's no clouds on the horizon, then, then you're a good candidate to do that. If, on the other hand, you're not comfortable with the offshore structure, you're afraid what's going to happen to the money, how's it going to be invested, I'm not going to have any control over it, et cetera, et cetera, because also I, I've seen situations where the client is the protector. 
That's not good either. As the protector, that means you can remove mm -hmm. the trustee, move the mm -hmm. assets back here. The court will see right through that. So, so you know, you've got to give up all control over the trust. And if a client's not comfortable with that, they want to be the protector, they want to be able to remove Bridgeford as a trustee, okay, then you ought to have a South Dakota trust. You're a candidate for that, or Delaware, or Nevada, or any of these 19 states, for that matter. Um, and, and, you know, how do I decide which state to use? Uh, well, you know, there, there are some good states that, that have no uh, exception creditors, like South Dakota. Uh, there are states that have short statute of limitations periods. What's, what's important to the client here? You know, is a, is a four-year period uh, or a two-year period important? Is, uh, uh, are exception creditors an issue? Is the client uh, concerned about divorce? Uh, claims uh, or is it uh, uh, just some third-party creditor that might arise at some point um, mm -hmm. and I think divorce you know a lot of people think oh I can I can set up an asset protection trust to protect me from divorce that's that's a harder nut to crack frankly because uh, I, I have a case now where I'm an expert witness in a California matrimonial a guy set up a bunch of Cook Islands trusts by the way uh, and all of his assets are real estate investments in, in California for the most part. And and they live in California. And he had his wife transfer these assets to him. Uh, she was not advised separately by her own counsel. Uh, she basically transmuted community property into separate property. He transferred into these trusts. And now he's getting divorced from her a few years later. And uh, I represent them, the expert on the wife's, for the wife's benefit. And uh, they, they just sat down to a mediation and it looks like they're going to settle this and they're going to have to modify the trusts and give her, you know, some of these assets because the judge is, judge is saying, well, these were these were marital assets, you know, and and the wife's entitled to half. Now, in this case, he put most of his assets in these trusts that that his mother was the purported grantor of. That doesn't fool anyone either. Uh, so so uh, he was the settler. They're self-settled. Uh, and and in many instances, if the uh, marriage and long-term marriage and the spouse is entitled to 50% of the assets. There are other assets to go after as well. I, I was an expert on a Cook Islands Trust about 20 years ago. Uh, the, the court said these were marital assets. And even though we have no jurisdiction over the Cook Island trustee, uh, we're going to treat them as part of the marital pot, take 50% of that, award the wife a money judgment, 50%, and she can then go after the his pension plan that remained here, the house that was owned jointly. And at the end of the day, she was made whole. She didn't have to go after the, the foreign trust. So so there's a lot of misperceptions about, you know, going offshore and, and how it's going to help you. Um, I I have no bias. I don't color this with, with any kind of... Uh, uh, a rosy outlook. I tell the clients the pros and the cons of each situation. And, and you know, it, it, as I said, I don't do as many offshore trusts as I did. It, nowhere near. Uh, the domestic variety will give most clients the peace of mind that, you know, and, and by the way, there's another option for a client who does, you know, 99.9% .9 of my clients that set up as protectors have never been sued. So we don't have to worry about it, really, you know, whether there's going to be a court proceeding or not. But if that 0.1% does get sued, what I tell the client is you can pick yourself up and move. So move to Nevada, move to South Dakota. You don't even have to move in the same jurisdiction as your trust is, because if you move to one of these 19 states, chances are the state court there should respect the South Dakota trust that you set up years earlier uh, because there's no public policy 
position against a self-settled trust in, in that state, right? So if I'm representing a client in New York, I say, you know, now you can move to Connecticut. <laughs> and, and Connecticut law will recognize self-settled trusts uh, as long as it's not a fraudulent transfer at the time. And it won't matter whether the trust was set up under South Dakota law or Connecticut law. So, you know, uh, a New York resident can easily find himself picking himself up and living in Connecticut. And a California resident can find themselves in picking a Picking himself up, moving to Nevada, maybe, uh, you know. Right. So, so there are right. options. Can you comment on the fact that uh, whether you know whether we like it or not, the United States has been referred to as a tax haven and a privacy haven and asset protection haven, and I know that makes certain people uncomfortable the use of the word haven. But nevertheless, I mean, you you again were in, in this space long before I think it became cool and trendy. So, so I mean, would you? The calls that you're getting, and I know that I'm surprised at the calls that Bridgeford gets in some cases on a daily basis of people around the world that just want to be in the United States. Does first of all, does that surprise you, given your years of practice, and and and, and is your practice developed? Like, well, I guess the question is, has your practice really exploded in that space? So yes, I'd say over the last uh, maybe ten years, uh, we've seen a significant, particularly here in New York, a significant influx of foreigners coming into the U.S. and uh, uh, and seeking uh, advice on how best to structure their affairs. Now, now I, I must say that uh, up until a few years ago, uh, most of the clients that we had, foreign clients, were coming to us because they either have family members now that have settled here, their kids came to college here and decided to stay, uh, or they th- s- thought that the U.S. was a, a secure place to invest and they saw the the real estate market uh, until recently here. In fact, in New York, a lot of the the new developments, uh, and same thing in Miami, uh, from South, with respect to South Americans, mm-hmm. uh, California, they saw a lot of Asians coming in there and and investing in the real estate market. And uh, uh, from that perspective, there was a lot of work to be done to to make sure that those investments are not going to be subject to U.S. estate tax when the foreigner dies, mm-hmm. or if they're uh, doing this to benefit family members now residing in the U.S., uh, there were very good methods to, good, good strategies to to employ to uh, minimize the wealth transfer tax and even the income tax on the on the earnings uh, while the, the foreign grantor is alive. Uh, and, and so that's what we were typically uh, offering to foreign clients. Uh, more recently, uh, the, the field has widened uh, because of something called CRS. CRS is, stands for Common Reporting Standard. And almost every developed, I don't know what that was. Are you still there? Okay. Uh, almost every reporting stand, every uh, developed nation, uh, except the U.S., has adopted this common reporting standard. It's basically an inter-national uh, agreement among countries uh, that they will. It's it's the reverse of FATCA. We imposed FATCA on uh, on other countries uh, about ten years ago. Uh, requiring them that if they wanted to do business with the U.S. and invest in U.S. securities on behalf of their clients, uh, they need to rat on all their U.S. customers uh, that uh, uh, U.S. citizens and U.S. residents, uh, if they have a foreign account. Uh, And so it was exchange of information. And then the foreign countries kind of 
and decided, well, let's do the same thing. We want to know that if if a German resident uh, has an account in Switzerland, we want Switzerland to tell us, uh, et cetera. And and so uh, Cayman Islands and Bahamas and Bermuda, everybody signed on to these. And so all of a sudden now all these uh, citizens of the world uh, who have not been reporting their their assets to their home countries uh, because they've had them in these so-called tax havens uh, are finding that uh, they're being reported and they want to move away from those countries and come to America uh, because they now see America as the tax haven because we are one of the only countries, developed countries, that has not uh, signed on to this common reporting standard. And unless we have an, a mutual information exchange agreement, uh, and even that is not the same as a, as a FATCA type of situation, reporting, automatic right. reporting, uh, they're not going to be ratted on. So I get calls from people right. saying, you know, I want you to set up a South Dakota trust. They heard the South Dakota, it's private. There's no public registry. Uh, I want to set up a South Dakota trust. Well, my concern is, uh, and again, Due diligence is, is key here, just like we're doing due diligence uh, when it comes to someone calling up for asset protection. We want to make sure they're not being sued or anything. Here we're doing due diligence. We want to make sure that the client, the funds that the client wants to move here are uh, compliant with their home country's laws, that if they do have reporting requirements, that they've re been reporting these funds, uh, particularly if they're coming right. from uh, a so-called tax haven, Switzerland, Cayman, Bahamas, whatever. Uh, and so uh, if we find that they haven't been reporting and we want we want a cert certification from their tax advisor, attorney, accountant, uh, that, that that's the case rather than relying on a self-certification. Uh, and I've spoken to a number of financial institutions that have now uh, adopted similar kind of uh, of intake requirements because uh, they they understand, they appreciate the fact that that uh, if they uh, bring in these clients, uh, and and it's dis discovered that they uh, that uh, the purpose here was to avoid CRS uh, tax avoidance is a money laundering offense in most foreign jurisdictions. Even though, by the way, it's not a money laundering offense under our laws, but that doesn't mean that you can't be held to have conspired uh, with someone to evade taxes in another jurisdiction. Uh, there is. Uh, th there is precedent for that. And last thing I want is to be uh, charged with any kind of money laundering offense. So so we have to be very careful that uh, people coming here have a legitimate purpose for coming here. Uh, and uh, and if they do, then there are a lot of great strategies to employ with South Dakota type trusts. Uh, you know, you could set up a trust uh, as a, a foreign grantor trust with a foreign grantor where the income from it uh, is treated as if it's earned by the grantor, non-resident alien, if you set it up properly. Uh, and that means that you can have a U.S. beneficiary receiving that income tax-free uh, uh, for as long as that grantor is alive. Uh, and, and then at the grantor's death, it would be a perpetual trust under South Dakota law, and it would continue on without having any exposure to a wealth transfer tax, a state tax, generation skipping tax uh, at each future level. And and that is uh, oftentimes what we are doing for foreign clients. 
we're, we're seeing a lot of that, and it's it's very powerful. You know, I have to have to. I noticed that the uh, the um, sirens with the police seemed to end abruptly as they got loud. I hope that nobody's standing outside your office ready to take you away because of what you said today. I have to make sure that uh, we we follow up with you afterwards. Gideon, I it's always fascinating talking to you. I love uh, the fact that we're we're um, we're talking more, and I've always, as I said, been following you for years. I'm looking forward to your presentation at Heckerling and future presentations. And um, again, really appreciate the time you took to, to do this. You know, this podcast has really uh, been very well received. We're, we're proud of the uh, we're proud of the penetration in terms of what we do here at Bridgeford with it. The focus at Bridgeford has always been and will always be honest, objective <coughs> education around the planning opportunities available under modern trust law and, and people like Gideon are, are who represent the best in the industry. So I encourage you to look at Gideon's bio, which is going to be posted with this um, webinar or rather podcast to see all the articles and, and see if you can access the articles because they are excellent and uh, and he's absolutely a, uh, an expert in, in, in many things, but particularly asset protection and, and um, the international space. So again, Gideon, if there's anything uh, else you'd the, like the to add. The only thing I'd add is, is uh, I'll, I'll give you a plug too. And, and I think that, you know, Bridgeford has, uh, is, is not an old trust company, uh, but uh, uh, the, 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 the uh, uh, experience I've had with you, your folks to date uh, has been uh, very positive and, uh, and I look forward to a, a more extensive uh, uh, relationship with you uh, going forward. And thank you for this opportunity. I appreciate that. No, and thank you for the opportunity to work together. So uh, uh, if the police are there, <laughs> let us know. I know a good lawyer. Otherwise, have, have a great holiday, and uh, we'll certainly be in touch soon. And uh, with that, we will, thank we, will, you. we will let you go. Have a good day. Thanks again for listening to Bridgeford Trust Company's Delivering Direction and Control podcast series. Be sure to subscribe to our podcast to keep posted on when new episodes are added. And for more information, visit us online at bridgefordtrust.com.